Hi, I'm Drew Beebe, the host of a new podcast from CNN called Great Big Story. It's a show about the curious side of the human experience. And I know that sounds like a lofty idea, but hear me out. Over the course of this show, we'll talk to some of the most interesting people you've ever met, from brilliant code breakers to a couple building their own artificial island. If you're itching for a good story and you're curious like I am, well, I think you might like this show. Give us a listen wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Aaron, thanks. Good evening all day. In cities and towns all across this country, people took to the streets, filling parks and gatherings at national landmarks, peacefully protesting of George Floyd. Eight days ago in Minneapolis. Tonight, in some of those places, curfews are in effect or about to take effect. New York's curfew begins right now, and as you can see, there are, there are still people out on the streets and on the move there in Brooklyn, where we'll go live in just a moment. Philadelphia's curfew starts at 8.30 in half an hour, and in Los Angeles, curfew starts in one hour. But we want to emphasize, throughout the day, we have seen huge crowds of people marching peacefully. In Washington, the curfew began a little more than an hour ago, and we're going to be watching to see how authorities handle the protesters there and elsewhere. We're also going to be watching to see, as the night progresses, if there is a repeat of what happened last night in New York, as peaceful protesters who largely went home and other young people broke into stores and destroyed property. We also have new reporting on who gave the order for authorities to move aggressively on peaceful protesters last evening outside the White House. That's what happened then, so that the president and his hangers-on could cross the street for a photo op outside a church, which he was neither invited to nor welcome to exploit the way he did. We'll be joined again tonight by the Bishop of Washington's Episcopal Diocese, who we spoke to last night, who condemned his visit. We'll also talk about his visit today to a Catholic church enshrined to Pope John Paul II. Today, the Archbishop of Washington said the late Pope, who has since been canonized, quote, certainly would not condone the use of tear gas and other deterrents to silence, scatter, or intimidate for a photo opportunity in front of a place of worship and peace. Or presumably use the downwash from low-flying military choppers to disperse crowds, as happened last night in Washington, tactics normally seen in war zones being used against American citizens protesting peacefully in the nation's capital. As we said at the top, a curfew is now in effect in New York City after a day of large and peaceful daytime demonstrations. Last night, it gave way to vandalism and break-ins at retail establishments, including Macy's flagship store in midtown Manhattan. Earlier today, the president lashed out at New York's governor for his decision to leave responsibility for protecting property and lives and enforcing the curfew to the New York City Police Department and not bring in the National Guard. Quoting now from the president's tweet, New York was lost to the looters, thugs, radical left, and all other forms of low-life sc and scum. The government refuses, excuse me, the governor refuses to accept my offer of a dominating National Guard. NYC was ripped to pieces. New York's governor, Andrew Cuomo, also criticized the mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, hand, uh, for his handling of last night, calling it, quote, inexcusable. Seen as Jason Carroll has been covering the protests throughout the day. Uh, Jason, 8 p.m. curfew is now in effect. Talk about what you've seen throughout the day, what you're seeing now um, on the streets. Well, right now we're in downtown Brooklyn in front of the Barclays Center where thousands of people have gathered, Anderson, much like we saw last night, and uh, are defying this curfew. They're just starting to march now, so we're going to march along as they go. So I feel in what happened out here today where we had, again, thousands of people who gathered and said that they wanted to honor George Floyd. A number of the speakers stood up and spoke out against the looting, spoke out against the vandalism and said that they wanted to honor a man who lost his life in Minnesota. Now, when we were out here last night, Anderson, we had thousands of people who defied the curfew. They continued to march until about 1 a.m. Throughout that whole time, there were a number of police, as you can imagine, and the tactic was to hang back and to allow the demonstrators to voice what they wanted to, but not to interact with them as much as they could. And that worked last night. That was last night. Tonight's a different night. We now have the curfew again in place. Last night it was at 11. Tonight it's at 8. And again, you have thousands of people who are again marching the streets, calling this again an act of civil disobedience. The question is, what happens tonight? What will the police tactic be tonight? And it's anyone's guess, really. I mean, obviously, the police are going to look at the crowd, feel out the crowd, see how things develop. But 
As for now, this has been a peaceful demonstration throughout the day, and a number of people that we've spoken to say that there's a real worry, Anderson, that with all of those images of the looting, all of those images of the vandalism, that people are going to lose, lose track of the fact that thousands upon thousands of people have been demonstrating in New York City and throughout this country peacefully. And they're just hoping that message doesn't get lost. Anderson. Yeah, it's such an important point to make, um, and and uh, and we've been making it, uh, I think, throughout the day, and certainly on this program. Jason, thank you. I want to check in now on the scene in Lafayette Park outside the White House. We also just want to get a quick reality check on the U.S. Park Police's claim late today that they only moved against protesters last, e last evening after various objects were thrown. Alex Marquardt was uh, was there, saw what uh, what happened. He's there once again for us tonight. What have the crowds been like today, um, and and what do you make of what the park police is saying? Uh, well, Anderson, we are now just over an hour into this curfew. As you can see here, there are still a lot of protesters who remain. Uh, in fact, they have chanted, we are not leaving. Uh, they have chanted other things about defying this curfew. I've been speaking to a number of people who say that they are going to stay. Uh, they are pressed right up against this new fence that is, uh, has been erected uh, outside the White House that was put up overnight. It's about eight feet high, made out of steel. Uh, those panels have been locked together so protesters can't uh, push through. Uh, uh, there has been uh, there have been a few people who have sort of started rocking them back and forth, and then they were reprimanded by other protesters. And that just goes to show that the vast majority of people here want to keep this peaceful. Uh, this has been an entirely peaceful protest today. Uh, we have not seen anything that was thrown, no projectiles that were thrown at the police. Uh, and that is the claim, Anderson, for why uh, they cracked down last night. We did hear uh, from the United States Park Police today saying, that there were agitators uh, among the protesters who started throwing frozen water bottles, bricks, uh, what they called caustic liquids uh, at, the, at, at, at the forces inside the park. And that is why they say at 6.35 p.m. yesterday, right before uh, the 7 p.m. curfew, that they launched that crackdown to, that emptied out this exact area where we are standing. Now, our CNN team, we did not see anything like that. It was an entirely peaceful pro protest as far as we could tell. Uh, we didn't see anything thrown. What we did see, Anderson, was right as the president was walking into the Rose Garden to say that he was the president of law and order, we saw forces from the U.S. Park Police sweep down 8th Street right here, firing all kinds of projectiles that w that made protesters cough and choke. Uh, they, they fired... Uh, pepper rounds, uh, flashbangs uh, to push people out of this area. And that's where we spoke to you from last night, from those, those streets that had been emptied of those protesters. We would later find out, as you know, Anderson, that that was because the president was disappointed, angered by the coverage of him having to go into a bunker on Friday night as protesters started up here in Washington, D.C. He wanted to be seen outside of the White House. So the park police cleared this entire area last night and... Walked, he walked across Lafayette Park right here from the White House. You can see it right there, walking the length of Lafayette Park over to St. John's Church, which is right there for that photo op in which he held up the Bible. When asked whether it was his Bible, he just said it was a Bible. Uh, so now this curfew is in effect. Uh, people, th this crowd has dramatically thinned out, Anderson, uh, in just the past few moments. Around half, I would say, have left. It's unclear where they went. Uh, I don't think it was in response to this curfew. They wanted to march, uh, but there is still a significant crowd here. Uh, and we will see whether uh, there is any, uh, any law, whether law enforcement decides to enforce this curfew. Of course, it is a city curfew, so that would be uh, the D.C. police whose decision it would be to clear these people out. Uh, mm. I imagine they are in these streets around us, but I haven't I, I haven't seen them. But anyway, uh, the, the the mayor of D.C. said that what she saw last night, she was uh, outraged by. She was stunned by. Uh, and it, and the chief of police here said it made his job much easier. Anderson. All right. Alex Marquardt. Uh, Alex, thanks very uh, much. Much more, much more difficult. I'm sorry. Much more difficult. Yeah, that's what I thought. Uh, much uh, more now on what we're now just learning about who is behind the publicity stunt at the church. You know, Jim Acosta has those late details, joins us now. Uh, so explain, I understand you have new reporting about exactly how this uh, surreal idea to visit St. John's uh, church last night came about. 
Uh, that's right, Anderson. Hearing from uh, two senior White House officials who say it was President Trump who came up with this idea to visit St. John's Episcopal Church uh, and that some of the top members of uh, the very uh, close people who are in his team uh, helped him hatch this plan. People like uh, his communications advisor, Hope Hicks, uh, Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump, uh, Mark Meadows, the White House chief of staff, all essentially helped the president implement this uh, plan and put it into place. Uh, the decision came down about one o'clock yesterday afternoon, I'm told, uh, and that initially the, the planning was for the administration to simply establish a security perimeter around the White House, around the White House neighborhood. This was largely in part, uh, they, these officials are saying, because of the church fire over at St. John's Episcopal Church, but then the president added the idea of a church visit yesterday afternoon, and then uh, administration officials uh, jumped into place to start putting that plan into action. Now, Anderson, the other thing we should point out is there are some inconsistencies in what we're hearing uh, from officials. You heard Alexander Marquardt say a few moments ago that Park Police are saying, uh, well, they, they implemented, they used some of these uh, harsh tactics yesterday because uh, protesters were being violent. Obviously, many journalists out there, including reporters from CNN, are saying they didn't see any acts of violence uh, against these police officers. But Anderson, obviously, if the president wants to visit a church outside of Lafayette Park, that park is going to have to be cleared. And I think the question has to be asked, well, what did they expect to happen uh, when they try to clear a park so quickly so the president uh, can have a publicity stunt, a photo opportunity outside of that church? I talked to one White House official earlier today who was doing some second guessing and saying, listen, this should have been done hours earlier in the day. Had they gone out hours earlier in the day and established this security perimeter, you would not have had the ugly yeah. scene potentially that we saw but, later on in the evening when more people show up. Jim, it's interesting, though. You know, I've been following some coverage among, you know, president supporters on Twitter and stuff. And it, there it's being portrayed as, you know, he's this tough guy who is, you know, he's not cowering in a bunker. He's this tough guy who decides to meander over with his, you know, gaggle uh, to this church. And so they clear it out. And that just shows how, how tough he is. I find it fascinating that Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner are involved in this decision. She apparently actually carried the Bible over in her purse, which she was clutching, uh, and then handed it to the president for the photo op. I noticed that they were smart enough not to actually get involved in the photo op itself. When the president is sort of trying to get people to come in from, uh, to help him out and stand with him, uh, they're nowhere to be seen. Uh, they clearly, you know... That's right. Have, they, uh, have their eye on the uh, on the future. Yeah, our understanding is that the president was sort of motioning people to come over and stand together with him for this photo opportunity. And, and, right. and there was Mark Meadows, the, the chief of staff, who like were reluctantly moving right. into and place. Mark Meadows there on the right. The chief of staff's kind of looking at the church as if there was a point for them to be there when there's really no point other than that photo. And I know uh, Kellyanne Conway has denied that this was a photo op. That is the definition of a photo op. And the fact That's that somebody right. encouraged the president to actually say something, and you can see the president going, shh, because he, he, he had nothing to say. That's right. And I will tell you, I talked to a Trump advisor uh, who advises the White House in the campaign earlier this evening uh, who questioned the idea of even going to the church for this photo opportunity. The president is not known to be a man of faith, uh, of deep faith. Uh, he occasionally uh, gets things wrong when it comes to references to the Bible. Uh, now, you, you don't want to question anybody's religious uh, feelings and their faith and so on. Uh, but, uh, you know, this this Trump advisor was essentially saying sarcastically, uh, why would the president go to a church, talk to White House officials? They say it's because he was disturbed by the scene at the church. Uh, but of course, as you know, Anderson, the president's Christian conservative evangelical base is a huge part of their plan to get reelected come November. And so it, it does make yeah. sense that he would make that, that journey out I mean, there. It, it's uh, not, let's not, you know, dance around it. It's the most obvious political, you know, it's the easiest political play for him to make. You know, he's the law and order guy and he's, you know, standing outside a church, you know, holding a Bible that his daughter carried over for him and handed him and then probably took back in her purse and who knows where that Bible is now. Uh, and if you talk to these officials yeah. this evening, they say, they still feel good about it, despite those scene, that ugly scene out there last night. They still feel good about it. And in the words of this one uh, White House official, they feel good that they, quote, restored law and order. The president's tweeting tonight that Washington, D.C. was the safest place on earth last night, not for the protesters, Anderson. 
you know, the idea that they restored law and order, again, I mean, I, we mentioned this last night, but, you know, the, the president talks about himself as law and order. Law and order is what peaceful protesters are actually asking for. It's what black Americans are actually asking for, equal treatment under the law. That will bring about law and order. It is not law and order when one group of people is being dominated uh, and repressed and treated differently by law enforcement that, uh, on a routine basis. That's not law and order. Um, that, that is disorder. That is unlawful. And it, I just find it ironic that the president is claiming the mantle of being our, quote unquote, our law and order president, when in fact that is what peaceful protesters are actually wanting. They are wanting yeah. equal justice under the law. And that law and order to a lot of those people last night felt like getting pummeled by police officers and uh, getting gassed uh, out of an area in a very violent way. Uh, it did yeah. feel like law and order to them, that's for sure. Yeah. Jim Acosta, thanks very much. Former President George yeah. W. Bush weighed in late today with a statement that does not mention President Trump by name, but minces no words. One passage reads, quote, this tragedy in a long series of similar tragedies raises a long overdue question. He's killing, talking about the killing of George Floyd. How do we end systematic racism in our society? The former president asks. The only way to see ourselves in a true light is to listen to the voices of so many who are hurt and grieving. Those who set out to silence those voices do not understand the meaning of America or how it becomes a better place. He went on to say, and I quote, the doctrine and habits of racial superiority, which once nearly split our country, still threaten our union. Just before airtime, I spoke about just those issues with Democratic Congressman and House Majority Whip James Clyburn. Congressman Clyburn, you've been involved in, in the civil rights movement your entire life. W when you see the images of protesters across the country, today we have saw in city after city peace, people peacefully, by and large, protesting. Um, what do you think? W how does this moment feel? to you? A little bit surreal. And, you know, when you look at what we were doing back in the 1960s and 70s, for that matter, uh, we really thought uh, that uh, were we to succeed, that it would be moving on to the next chapter. Uh, and I thought that for a long time. Uh, but the more uh, I studied history, and the longer I lived, I began to see the realization that in this country, things uh, move like a pendulum on the clock. They seem to go to the right for a while, then back left for a while, then back right. Uh, and I think that what we saw uh, is when the country moved to the left and elected Barack Obama, there was this rush to get the country going back to the right. And boy, did it go back to the right. And we elected Donald Trump. I don't believe that anybody realized at the time that the country was being pushed over the cliff. And I'll tell you, what I feel today is that the future of this country is really at stake. I think that what is going on, not just in the streets, but what's going on in the White House uh, leads me to believe, from my study of history, that this country is at a crossroads. And if we don't choose wisely between now and the end of this year, uh, I think that we are seeing the demise of the greatest democracy that ever on Earth. You believe the stakes are that high, that that is the, alter that is the alternative? Yes, I do believe that. And one of the reasons we, uh, we study history is hopefully uh, to understand what to do and what not to do going forward. Uh, I think it was George Santayana who admonished that if you fail to learn the lessons of history, you're bound to repeat them. So the question is, have we learned any lessons of our history? We seem not to be learning any lessons. Uh, and, and if we don't learn them, then we can repeat that. Anybody that studied history as long uh, at all will know that no matter how great the power gets, if you are not careful, uh, you could lose that. Now, I don't know if Thomas Jefferson ever said it, but they uh, always say that uh, he said, no, I, I've done research and I can't find where Thomas Jefferson ever said that the price of liberty 
is eternal vigilance. Uh, well, now he said it. It is a truism. The price of liberty is eternal vigilance. We are losing that. Last night, you know, when, when there was a curfew in New York, for the first time since 1943, I wondered, oh, I wonder what the, that curfew was back in 1943. So I looked it up. It was August 1943. And the reason there was a curfew in New York then was because a white police officer shot an African-American man, a soldier who had uh, fought in the war, uh, and, and shot him in the streets. Uh, didn't kill him, but shot him. And that led to days of, of protests and, 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 and uh, what they call rioting. Uh, and and the 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 curfew happened. So when somebody looks at that and says, "Well, look, there have been peaceful protests for a long time, and the problems still remain." What do you say? I mean, do, what do you say to give hope to somebody that change is possible? I will say to young people, you shouldn't give up on this system. Do like John Lewis asked us to do a couple of days ago. You know, I tell people all the time, I met my wife in jail. Uh, so I'm, I know what this is all about. We stayed married for 58 years. It worked pretty good for us. <laughs> but I think that we have to always remember uh, that we have to make sacrifices uh, to make this country work. And if we work together, uh, maintaining solidarity with each other, and do not allow yourself to play that your opponent's game. Violence is not our game. That's our opponent's game. The president used violence last night. The unjust use of force is just as violent as the unjust use uh, of, uh, of, of power. Uh, so power, the president used unjustly. And sometimes people in the streets are using force unjustly. Both of them are misuses uh, of power. Both of them are violent uh, acts, uh, which must come to a close. One of the things that I, I find stunning about what the president said yesterday is he now is, says, you know, I'm your law and, law and order president. Um, but to me, it seems like the peaceful protesters, people who are calling for systematic change, who are calling for, you know, equal rights, who are calling for equal treatment under the law, those are people who want law and order. Law and order is not a police force dominating a group of people. Law and order is a police force treating everybody equally under the law. That's law and order. Well, you know, George Will has just written uh, about this president, and he's also written uh, about the Republican Party. And I find it kind of interesting. When I call for this country to use the CARES Act uh, to restructure things in the vision of this great country with liberty and justice for all, is there in our Pledge of Allegiance. I was marked on the floor of the United States Senate by the, the Republican leader of the Senate, Mitch McConnell, and all kinds of tweets that went out over the airwaves about me using that term of reshaping things, restructuring things uh, in uh, the vision of this great country. We got to restructure health care. We got to restructure the judicial system. We got to restructure our educational system. I'm not backing away from that. And I'm not going to stop because people mock that. When I call for investing in, in low-income communities, I came up with my 10, 20, 30 formula. Spend at least 10% of this money, where 20% or more of the population is stuck beneath the poverty level for the last 30 years. I've been mocked by people for doing that. Yet some people say, that's a good way to address the question of reparations. If we stop mocking people and just look at the substance that people are trying to pursue, that's what this president is doing. He mocks people. He insults people. And now he's using violence against peaceful protesters. This president is taking this country to a place that none of us ever thought we would see. And I would hope the Republican party will wake up. I will hope the people of this country will wake up before it's too late. Hmm. Congressman Clyburn, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Another uh, voice has just weighed in on the president's threat to send active duty troops into American cities, or as Defense Secretary Esper said in a conference call on Monday, quote, to dominate the battle space. 
talking about American streets, the battle space. First, just you know, let that sink in. None of this is sitting well with a retired uh, Admiral Mike Mullen, a former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff under Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama. In an op-ed for The Atlantic, he writes, quote, our fellow citizens are not the enemy and must never become so. He adds, even in the midst of the carnage we are witnessing, we must endeavor to see American cities and towns as our homes and our neighborhoods. They are not battle spaces to be dominated and must never become so. It's the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Much more ahead tonight as curfews take effect across the country. Coming up next, the attorney for George Floyd's family joins us to talk about possible charges against the other three officers. They've already been fired but not charged. We'll talk about that with Mr. Crump. Later, the Episcopal Bishop of Washington on the president's exploitation of one of the churches she oversees and the president's equally unwelcome visit to a Catholic shrine today. That and more as we continue. Symptoms of overactive bladder, or OAB, may be bothersome. As many as 46 million Americans, 40 years of age or older, have reported symptoms of OAB. I got to the point where I was constantly having to plan my outings around being able to go to the bathroom. Felt like my bladder was calling the shots. Many people like her decided enough was enough. It was time to talk to a doctor. We spoke to a few of them to hear their stories in their own words. Listen in at oabmed.com and hear how they discovered Mirbetric Mirabegron. Mirbetric is a prescription medicine for adults used to treat OAB symptoms of urgency, frequency, and leakage. Do not take if you have a known allergic reaction to Mirbetric or its ingredients. Mirbetric may increase blood pressure. Tell your doctor right away if you have trouble emptying your bladder or have a weak urine stream. Mirbetric may cause serious allergic reactions like swelling of the face, lips, throat, or tongue, or trouble breathing. If experienced, stop taking and tell your doctor right away. Mirbetric may interact with other medicines. Tell your doctor if you are taking thioridazine, melaril, and melaril S, flecainide, tambacor, propafenone, rhythmol, digoxin, linoxin, or solifenacin, succinate, vesicare. Tell your doctor if you have liver or kidney problems. Common side effects include increased blood pressure, common cold or flu symptoms, sinus irritation, dry mouth, urinary tract infection, bladder inflammation, back or joint pain, constipation, dizziness, and headache. See our ad in Reader's Digest magazine or call 1-855-697-2387. Hear real stories about how Mirbetric can help OAB symptoms at oabmed.com and ask your doctor if it could help you. That's oabmed.com. I want to show you some uh, the scene right now uh, in that is in New York City live uh, 8:26 p.m. The curfew began about 26 minutes ago. Looks like Park Avenue. Uh, actually, well, yeah. Well, I don't know. I'll find out exactly where that is. Uh, I've lived here all my life. I should know, shouldn't I? A curfew in effect here since the top of the hour. Memorials will be held for George Floyd on Thursday in Minneapolis, Houston, and North Carolina. That's the scene in Boston. We learned that today from uh, Floyd family attorney Benjamin Crump, who also says he's been assured that charges will be filed against the three other fired officers involved, in addition to Derek uh, Chauvin, who's already been charged with third-degree murder or manslaughter. We also heard the first public comments from the mother of George Floyd's daughter. Roxy Washington stood with her six-year-old daughter and gave a heartbreaking talk about how this will affect Floyd's little girl for years to come. Shiana does not have a father. He will never see her grow up, graduate. He will never walk her down the aisle. If it's a problem she's having and she needs her dad, she does not have that anymore. Benjamin Crump joins us now along with Gloria Brown Marshall. She's a constitutional law professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice here in New York and author of Race, Law, and American Society, 1607 to present. Uh, Mr. Crump, do you have any updates on, on if and when authorities may charge the other officers, and do you have any sense of what they would be charged with? Anderson, we believe that there will be charges of the other three officers before George Floyd is laid to rest. Uh, we think that these officers uh, were complicit, but not just complicit, based on our independent autopsy. The knees in the back of the other officer was just as significant to the knee in the neck. And so we think all of them should be charged with some type of felony murder for participating in the killing, the horrific killing of George Floyd. And, and Mr. Crump, I know uh, you and the Floyd family want Officer Chauvin charged first-degree murder. 
which he wasn't. Um, First-degree murder requires planning, premeditation, and I understand the idea of wanting a tough charge in order to gain leverage, perhaps, in a, in a subsequent deal, but do you believe there was planning and premeditation in the killing of Mr. Floyd? Well, all we know is this. Based on the video, when you look at the video for yourself, he's on his neck for nine minutes. There's the audio now, Anderson, that we know one of the officers uh, proclaims he doesn't have a post. Maybe we should turn him on his side. Officer Chauvin says, no, we'll keep him in this position. And then after he is unconscious, they stay on him for more than uh, three minutes. So how is that not intent? A person is telling you he doesn't have a pulse. People are telling you you're killing him. He needed to take a breath, and they didn't have the humanity to allow him to get air. It is first-degree murder. That's how the George Floyd family said That's how many people who watch this video see it all across the world. Professor Brown Marshall, um, prosecutors all the time, you know, charge people with uh, very, very tough charges, knowing that there will be some sort of discussion down the road of, of to basically to intimidate uh, people who, you know, don't have the resources to to fight back against this. What do you make of uh, prosecutors using third uh, already going for third degree mur uh, murder? That's, I think that in many instances, um, uh, Anderson, I, I, I just want to say that um, in many instances, this is a reasonable standard. And the standard we have that's reasonable for an officer's behavior when it comes to a black person is not the standard that you see that's reasonable when it comes to a white person. And I'll give you these three quick examples. One, the Boston bomber. This is somebody who killed and was chased and was found and was then asked to come out of hiding. They knew where he was. They didn't kill him. They didn't shoot him. He stood trial and now he's standing um, for his life on, on death row. We have the, the case, for example, of Eric Frayne. Eric Frayne assassinated a state trooper in Pennsylvania. He was There was a manhunt for him for weeks. Remember that? Mm -hmm. And then he was captured. He had one bruise on his face. And they asked, well, what did they do? They beat him up. He didn't, he wasn't shot. He wasn't killed. I mean, I want us to think about this. The fact that Eric Frayne now has been on death row. He's going to be executed this month. He lived to stand trial. These were heinous crimes. The Aurora shooter who went into that darkened theater and shot all those people lived. He came in in handcuffs. So when we talk about something like a fraudulent suspicion of a fraudulent $20 bill, then we have to understand that what we consider reasonable to a person of African descent is nowhere near the standard that's used for white people. Hmm. Mr. Crump, um, we, we heard more about Mr. Floyd today from uh, uh, seeing, meeting, seeing his daughter, uh, hearing from uh, his daughter's mom. Um, how is the family doing and as you prepare for uh, for sending Mr. Floyd home for his for his funeral? Well, uh, Mr. Floyd's family, his other children are arriving in Minneapolis tomorrow. Uh, it's very painful for them. They are very aware of what's happening in America. And what they're asking everybody to do is, is to take that was not allowed for George to take a breath for peace, take a breath for justice, take a breath to help heal our country. But most importantly, let's take a breath this week for George Floyd and remember his legacy so all of his children will know that his life mattered and that we all as a world will know that black lives matter. Benjamin Crump, Glory Brown Marshall, I appreciate your time. Thank you and I apologize for uh, the audio issues we are having. Just ahead, Republican reaction or lack thereof to President Trump's photo op at the church last night. The bishop who oversees St. John's Church joins me again to talk about that, along with the role religion plays during times of intense division in this country.
The protests in Washington, D.C. tonight are a far cry from last night when authorities broke up a peaceful crowd so President Trump could have a photo op in front of a church holding a Bible that he was. A few Republicans today, like Senators Tim Scott and Ben Sass, were willing to criticize the move against protesters to clear a path for a photo op. Many Republican uh, senators were not. Some claimed they knew nothing about it, others avoiding answering altogether. Republican Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said, quote, I'm not going to criti critique other people's performances. It was certainly something of a performance. Back with me again tonight, Bishop Marianne Buddy, who oversees the church that the president used as that photo op last night. Bishop, thanks so much for being with us. We spoke last night. You were uh, very uh, upset or angry, I guess you could say, disappointed at what the president did. Today, you went to the National Shrine of St. John Paul II on the heels of the photo op at St. John's uh, Episcopal Church last night. I'm wondering what you make now, 24 hours later, of what the president is doing. Um, it's good evening, Anderson. Great to be with you again. I, um, I have to defer to my colleague and friend, Archbishop Gregory, who spoke um, on behalf of his church, expressing the same confusion and, um, and outrage that the president would use religious symbols to, um, to make statements that are antithetical to the faith. And he can't, he couldn't understand why the president would go two weeks after John Paul's death to pay his respects and to um, place himself before the shrine of, of the former pope. So I actually, I can't speak to that at all. It is, it strikes me as perplexing. Similarly, they had no idea that he was doing what he was doing as neither did we. It, um, it didn't seem to be an expression of faith or of solidarity with faith. It seemed to be, as we've said before, an opportunity to clothe himself in the mantle of spiritual symbols and locations to in some way bolster or reinforce his own authority and message. And that is where we, of course, um, have separated ourselves, making the distinction that we, we have no part in that and we reject that association. I mean, it's one thing if, you know, a politician goes to a church service or right. goes to a confessional or, you know, interacts with a, a religious, uh, uh, with the pastor and has an actual conversation um, or, you know, talks about their faith as a way of connecting and reaching out with uh, the faith of many other Americans in all its different forms. And yet that this was not any of that. It was clearly political designed to send a message to voters. I mean, it's the only way to, you know, the, you know, I should point out, you know, just like last night, the president stopped for the cameras today. And I mean, it's not, not immediately obvious he did any praying. He certainly didn't last night. Well, and you know, my, the people who have, um, Across the spectrum of faith who have criticized me for my lack of welcome to the president, um, as if to imply that we were not welcoming of his presence in the church. I mean, I was just very clear that the president is always welcome to pray. The president is always welcome to do the things that you described, which is all what we all do when we gather in Christian community or when we pay our respects in spiritual um, in a spiritual context. But as you said, he did none of those things. He didn't open and read from the Bible that he held. He did not engage us in with a spiritual message of consolation or of exhortation. He did not greet us. Uh, there was no interaction whatsoever. And so um, it's impossible to interpret, from my perspective, it's impossible to interpret what he did in light of an expression of faith but more as a, um, as I said before, as a way to clothe himself in symbols that um, had been appropriated for a different purpose. And if you have to trample on people's bodies in order to get to a photo op, um, that obviously adds a whole other layer to it. I mean, you're trampling on people, uh, hitting people with sticks, dispersing uh, what was a peaceful crowd. I mean, you know, and... Um, I, let's just talk just in general, b bigger picture, because I thought you were very eloquent yeah. on this on this last night about where we are as a country. Um, the, the faith community has played such an important role in the civil rights movement, um, and and that continues. Can you just speak to, to, to those who are watching, you know, in their homes tonight who maybe uh, have been out protesting or maybe don't understand why people are out protesting or fearful that there's going to be looting tonight in their community and view that as the same as 
what the protesters are doing, which is is not. Well, you've put a lot on the table there. I know. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to toss that all to you. <laughs> Let me take it bit by bit. Um, um, first of all, people of faith, um, we show up everywhere, right? We show up on every spectrum. We show up on every side of every struggle. Yes, we were involved in civil rights. Some of my predecessors were some of the strongest resistors to civil rights. And so you can't just say because we're people of faith or because we're religious, we're going to take things one way or another. Each of us are broken people. Each of us are struggling to interpret our traditions in our own way. Each of us bring our own humanity to that um, cosmic and epic life struggle. Having said that, when you walk the path of faith, the goal is to become more um, more fully human, and for Christians that means more Christ-like. And so we look to Jesus and we try to emulate our lives on His. And we try to ask ourselves, okay, you know, in that that, that meme of a question, what would Jesus do? Or as our presiding bishop would say, what would love do? What does sacrificial love look like in this moment? What does the heart of God want to say to us, a God who is of unconditional love and complete justice and universal compassion? What would that God ask of us in that moment? And so for some of us, we look at the struggle we're in right now and the agony we're in, and we see Golgotha. We see the struggles of humanity depicted in our most sacred stories, and we say, yeah, that's, that's where God would want us to be. That's where God would ask us to show up in solidarity with suffering, in solidarity with those who are struggling for a better day, mm. to build what Jesus called the kingdom of God on earth, which is a place of universal, unconditional love and respect for every human being, regardless of faith or lack of faith, because of our inherent dignity as children of God. And so in that shalom, there is no place for racism. There is no place for white supremacy. There is no place for police brutality. There is no place for rioting and violence. We all are held to an accountability of that highest standard. Hmm. We all fall short. We all have our blind spots, but we are called to, to account and to show up. So I would say to anyone watching, that's what, um, that's what we're trying to do. And we don't always get it right, but we want to be on the side of right. And hmm. we want to be on the side of goodness. And, um, and we want to be on the side of hope for rising generations who are looking at this world, wondering where in God's name is this future taking them? And we yeah. want to say to them, even in the midst of this, even in the midst of what you're showing on your screen right now, there is hope and there is love and there is joy to be had in this world. And we are going to stand for that and stand for you. Bishop Marianne Buddy, thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Up next, former Vice President Joe Biden spoke out today about what the president did last night in front of St. John's Episcopal Church and had a message for protesters what he said and how the protests might impact the November election. Think about your home for a moment. It's where life happens. It's where you build that tree house or try that new recipe. It's where you rest and recharge, work and play. You expect a lot out of it. And that's why HomeAdvisor is committed to keeping your home up and running, no matter what. They match you with the best pros in your area. Pros who can get your home projects done right. From unexpected jobs like appliance repairs, clogged gutters, and leaky faucets, to projects you actually look forward to, like creating your very own backyard summer retreat or getting that new pool installed. Whatever it is, they're here to help. And the Home Advisor app makes it easy. Use it to book and pay for more than 100 projects with just a few taps. Plus, if you're looking for some local inspiration, you can see trending tasks in your neighborhood. So whether you need a last-minute fix, routine home maintenance, or an exciting new upgrade, Home Advisor is here. Ready to do everything to fix your everything. Download the Home Advisor app and get started today. For the first time since these protests began, they coincide with a major point in the 2020 election cycle. Today is primary day for eight states plus Washington, D.C. Voters choosing House and Senate candidates to compete in November, including in swing states like Pennsylvania and Iowa. Today in Philadelphia, Joe Biden spoke about the death of George Floyd and the protests. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. George Floyd's last words, but they didn't die with him. They're still being heard, echoing all across this nation. A country is crying out for leadership. 
Leadership that can unite us, leadership that brings us together. But I promise you this, I won't traffic in fear and division. I won't fan the flames of hate. CNN senior political commentator and former Obama administration senior advisor David Axelrod joins us and Charlemagne the God, radio personality. He recently had the headline-making interview with Joe Biden and a fascinating interview with Rush Limbaugh. He's the best-selling author of Shook One, Anxiety Playing Tricks on Me. Charlemagne, the Joe Biden that's recently emerged after being mostly in his home in Delaware uh, for the last couple of months, I'm wondering what you make of the contrast he's attempting to draw with President Trump. Well, Anderson, first, thank you for having me. Um, uh, the contrast he's trying to make with President Trump, I think he, he he did very well today in Philadelphia. You know, he said a lot of things that I wanted to hear. Uh, and I know it's dream selling season and politicians say what they need to in order to get elected, but I really enjoyed it. But I, I need some action. Like, I need him to really lean into blackness now. Like, like to me, it's like this. If, if Barack Obama was JFK, then Joe Biden needs to be Lyndon B. Johnson. You know, he has the opportunity to be as progressive as Lyndon B. Johnson. Lyndon B. Jo Lyndon B. Johnson may have been, you know, labeled a racist, but his record doesn't reflect that. You know, LBJ's record shows that he has, like, the most effective progressive record on race and class of any Democratic president of the past 80 years. So I think, you know, Biden's record in the Senate actually mm -hmm. reflects very racist legislation, but he has a chance to correct that by doing right by black people. David, do you think Joe Biden can do that? Well, I think he I think he can and I think he has to, because I think the situation in the country, uh, the things that used to be called progressive now appear pragmatic. Uh, there have to be answers to some of the really serious problems that have been laid bare by this virus and the economic situation that is going to continue to plague this country into the next administration. So I would expect that you'd see his campaign to begin to unravel or unfurl, I should say, uh, uh, plans uh, that are large in scope and ambitious and get to some of the root causes of the problems that uh, have drawn people to the streets, This, uh, these historic problems. Sure. I mean, I, mean, I think there's a lot of Democrats who maybe see these large crowds of people protesting peacefully in the streets day after day after day and think, well, you know, this election, it's, it's obviously going to go for the Democrats. Uh, a lot of people thought that, obviously, in 2016. Do you see these crowds? Exactly. And, do you th and do you think, oh, this translates into what happens on election night? No, it's not a sure thing at all, because we still don't know how Donald Trump won in 2016. A lot of people will say Donald Trump was an illegitimate president, you know, uh, just like how Joe Biden's leading in all the polls now. Hillary was doing, uh, Senator Clinton was doing the same thing in 2016, you know, and I, I think that that's why it's very important for, for Joe Biden to, like, really lean into blackness. Like, I think he needs to announce one of these overly qualified sisters as his running mate, whether it's Senator Kamala Harris, Val Demings, Keisha Lance Bottom, Stacey Abrams. He's already committed to putting a black woman on the Supreme Court, which would be his, you know, Lyndon B. Johnson, Thurgood Marshall moment. Like, if this country wants to get his soul right, wants to get his soul right, like he said, he said that the, the soul of the country is at stake, he really has to lean into the black community. He has to be the white guy who's willing to relinquish some of that power privilege allows him. As long as there's a system of white supremacy, there's going to always be oppression. And if we don't have elected officials who are willing to dismantle the mechanism of white supremacy, if we don't have elected officials who are willing to change legislation that disproportionately impacts black folks, it, it, it won't matter. And he's going to have trouble in November. David, do you see your former boss, uh, former President Obama, getting or, or what kind of role do you see him? How vocal a role do you see him having moving forward? Look, I think he'll play an active role. He did in 2018. He feels, obviously, feels strongly about the importance of this election. Uh, I don't think he's going to jump out in front of the candidate. Ultimately, Joe Biden's the man who's running for president, and he's going to have to carry a lot of the load here. Uh, and this was, a, this was an important moment today, Anderson, because he stepped out at a time when the country really needed to hear from him, and he, uh, and he made a very powerful speech, and it was made more powerful in juxtaposition with what we saw saw last night where the, you know, it's very hard to be the president of law and order when you're holding a, a can of rhetorical kerosene in your hand. And that's what we saw last night. And we saw Biden step forward, not as the 
uh, someone seeking to be the candidate of a base of voters, but uh, as, as someone who is seeking to be president of the United States and honestly uh, searching for healing and understanding. And I think that's very powerful, but he's going to have to do it uh, repeatedly, and he's going to have to be there to counter uh, some of the negative energy of Donald Trump. Charlemagne, when, when, you know, when people hear the president saying, I I'm your law and order president, the thing I don't understand is it seems to me the one of the, the things that the protesters at their core are asking for is law and order. They just want the law to be equally uh, meted. They, they, they don't want to be That's different it. under the law. They don't want law and order shouldn't mean dominating black people. It should mean equal treatment under that law. And that will bring law. And that is what law and order is. It's, it's it's really, really, really just that simple. And, you know, David said something that's very important. He talked about healing. And that's why I keep saying Joe Biden has to lean into the black community. Like, if you look at the way coronavirus is impacting the black community, if you look at the George Floyd protest, which is just the latest killing of a black person at the hands of the police, we all know why that is. Because America has not atoned, hasn't healed, you know, from its original sin, which is slavery. And all these underlying conditions caused by systemic racism make the black community so vulnerable to all the BS I just named. So based off all the wrongs this country has done to, to black people, whether it's slavery, segregation, mass incarceration, the war on drugs, all those wrongs that need to be corrected, the only path forward for this country is through the black community. And that's why I'm so hard on Democrats, because black people, we vote for them 90% of the time in all elections, but we haven't gotten the proper ROI. So we need Dems, especially Joe Biden, to atone through legislation and reparations, period. And from what I heard today in that speech in Philly, he sounds like he wants to do that. We just need mm -hmm. Biden to, you know, stand. We need him to stand on the foundational principles of what Democrats are supposed to be about, and that's civil rights and greater economic equality. Yeah, Charlamagne de God, David Axelrod, thank you very much. Great discussion. Appreciate it. We'll be right back. And we're uh, obviously monitoring uh, events uh, across the country. We've been uh, looking at, let's see, are those pictures, is that Atlanta now? Yeah, that's Atlanta, uh, just about a minute away from the, uh, the start of the curfew. Uh, there's uh, the National Guard, I believe, uh, though not so much, it's hard to see there, but I believe National Guard on the streets there. Uh, curfew taking a, a effect and just, uh, yeah, that's also uh, shots of, of Atlanta as well. Uh, we've seen peaceful protests across the country throughout the day. Our coverage continues right now with Chris.